when you walk into a school building, what do you see that tells you this is a place where I see me in it? I see my children. I see my community. I see my family. I see my culture. I see my language. Welcome to today's episode of a new sub-series of the podcast, Who Belongs? The Othering and Belonging Institute, with financial support from the Annie Casey Foundation, is developing a series of podcasts to capture examples of bridging to belonging. We want a world where everyone belongs. So how do we get there? The answer, bridging. Throughout the series, we will talk to leaders implementing the work and individuals who have experienced the transformation of bridging. My name is Miriam Magaña Lopez, and I'll be hosting today's episode. Today, we'll be speaking with Francis Lucerna. Francis is the founding principal of El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice and current president of El Puente Community-Based Organization. The community organization was founded in 1982 in response to the growing violence, drug use, and lack of support in the Southside community of Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Now it also includes a community high school and a middle school. Frances will share with us how she and other community leaders created a school environment that fosters a true sense of belonging among all students and their families. Frances, thank you so much for joining. I am really excited to talk to you about your school and your organization. It's my understanding that El Puente began as a community-based organization providing support for young people outside of the school system. However, 10 years after its inception, you also co-founded your own high school, which you named El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice. Can you tell me what is unique about this school? Well, it's great first and foremost to be with you, Miriam. And um, yes, the El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice, as you said, uh, really was an opportunity that we received um, 10 years, almost 11 years after we started uh, El Puente in 1982. By that time, we had really developed uh, a model for holistic community and youth development with our young people, um, a model that really engaged young people in terms of the development of their body, their mind, and their spirit, always and uh, very, very closely connected to the empowerment of themselves as leaders and to change, making change in the community. And so just as we were motivated uh, by a commitment to self-determination when we founded El Puente in 1982, I think the same motivation was um, what motivated us to really make the decision to open um, the pub- our public school, the El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice in 1993. It came out of a very unique um, partnership an initiative here in New York City between the Department of Education and uh, the nonprofit uh, Public Schools for New Visions. And it gave an opportunity for new schools to be developed out of partnerships um, that were diverse partnerships. They could be partnerships between parents and educators, universities, and, um, you know, and uh, schools of higher learning. Unions could um, develop a a vision for a school and also community-based organizations. And so we were approached by Naomi Barber, who was one of the directors of New Visions, to apply. Um, And I, this is an important sort of piece to this, 
because up until that point, we were pretty much known for our advocacy and our organizing uh, with regards to the community, to the schools in our community, District 14. And so we were pretty much more known for closing schools <laughs> or boycotting uh, because of, um, you know, practices that were totally and completely, in, in some cases, as in PS16, unconstitutional. Um, but also with regard to what we were clear what was not happening for our young people. They were some of the most um, lowest performing and most violent schools in the city at the time. So when we made this decision to open up the Upwente Academy uh, for Peace and Justice, it really was out of that. Our, our commitment to self-determination of the community, we came at it as uh, community organizers and really saw this as an opportunity to take what we knew was powerful, transformative, and worked in terms of supporting young people and um, in, in a very powerful way um, in a three to nine setting to do this in a nine to three setting and really imagine and create this new vision of what school could be. Coming out of the context of a community, based on the values and the principles and the culture and the history of the people in the community, in our Latino community, um, and also driven by a mission. And the mission was to inspire and nurture leaders for peace and justice. So that became the impetus for even the name, the Upwente Academy for Peace and Justice. Little known to us at the time, this would be one of the first public schools in the, in the country uh, dedicated to human rights and social justice. Um, and so there, therein lies sort of what the impetus was, but the process was really one that um, was really dynamic and really challenging, you know, because we were working now within the construct of traditional schools, right? I mean, um, and really being able to really think, as we always did, really out of the box, but from a place of what we were clearly you know, had, had understood that was important in terms of a school really being not a institution in a community, but a community institution really gave us the, um, the guidelines and the context for some, I think, key decisions. That first and foremost, the staff of the school would be El Puente, um, El Puente staff themselves, uh, many of us who had developed this model for young people and um, could translate that. Also, uh, make sure that it was consistent with our principles and our mission. And those principles, we have 12, you know, uh, fundamental principles, but the key principles were uh, creating community, love and caring, mastery and peace and justice. And that this school would be a school where the primary focus and the fundamental practice would be building relationships with young people. Thank you. That's a really great introduction to your school. And it sounds like an amazing opportunity for young people. I, I'm curious, you mentioned it just now, the, the word facilitator, which in traditional settings would be teachers. Can you talk about why um, you use that framing? Well, we use the framing because I, I, and I think it, again, it came out of this intentionality in terms of making sure that everything that we were going to implement 
uh, in the school really reflected what our what we believed, you know, and what we wanted to really be able to reinforce in terms of the experience for for our young people and our community and our families. So, you know, we clearly saw ourselves as and and really looking at a pow- the power paradigm that that language uh, brings, and so this idea of teacher and what it then connoted for all of us um, in our lived experience of school in an institutional context was that there was someone in front of the room who had all of the knowledge, and we were here as just passive recipients to whatever that information was. We were going to flip that and really uh, make a declaration that we all come with a lived experience and also rich in knowledge that could be and should be the centerpiece of then how curriculum and all of the experiences of learning would then be centered and grounded in. So so we, in essence, were facilitators of a process of creating um, reciprocity in this in this in this learning um experience that again first and foremost was grounded in our lived experience in the culture in the language in the history and the tradition of our young people even even and most important i think when we made a decision in terms of the the youth culture the culture that they were uh coming out of the culture that really spoke to them. And so, you know, uh, very early on, the integration of hip hop, the integration of spoken word and graffiti um, was really important, you know, um, in terms of really integrating that as, as a way and a very powerful statement of what I think is the most important thing in terms of this conversation and what we did was this real message to young people that we see you, you know, that we see each other and we see each other in our totality. And, and in that, and in that, uh, we honor, we celebrate and we explore, you know, um, that lived experience that we're bringing to this, um, to this setting. Yeah, it's it's so beautiful to hear you talk about the intention that you put in every decision to transform the school this school and this educational environment because students spend the majority of their lives in a classroom and oftentimes that intentionality of, you know, how the relationships between educators and students and um, this, the physical space is not really thought out and sometimes can cause some unintended consequences that we don't have to talk about, but it's just really lovely to hear about how you created this amazing school basically out of nothing. And it brings me to my next question because you also, in 2014, you acquired a middle school, middle school 50. And I'm curious to hear about your experience transforming Middle School 50, which was an existing school, into a school using your model that uses, focuses on your values and creates a true sense of belonging among all students. How would you compare that to creating the El Puente Academy for Peace and Justice? Well, that was, you know, and, and there, and there again, it lies what happens so often here at El Puente uh, because we are a community institution that's been here for 40 years, is this full circle, 
right? When we created the Apuente Academy for Peace and Justice, it was recognized as one of the first community schools in the country. Um, <laughs> you know, for the obvious reasons of that, it was created by a community-based organization. So in every sense, it was what I think is still the promise of what a community school can be and should be. Um, and I think that, you know, we all recognized and as we were developing the academy and what what now have very clear definitions and, and, and terms to describe, uh, you know, culturally relevant or responsive, you know, pedagogy, social emotional learning, um, you know, leadership development, um, all of those things, mentoring, all of those things were just pretty much inherent in the model that we then integrated in the school. But it was a school that we created, right? We always understood, and then certainly I understood, that the great challenge would be then how to translate that to an existing school. MS50 was, a, was probably the most um, opportune, um, uh, you know, opportunity that we could have. This was a school, a middle school in our community that we had been involved with because we had a beacon program in that school since 1996, right? So we were working in after-school context. The school, at, by 2014, I think, became symbolic because what was happening in New York City was this process of, of, of uh, an assessment of underutilized schools, particularly in communities like ours, right, in Los Ures, that then were um, slated for closure, but in the process of that were then rented or co-located with charter schools. And MS50 became one of those schools for many different reasons. You know, the school was in trouble. It was failing. Um, the, the attendance had, had become very, very critical, critically low. Um, there was just so many factors in terms of morale and, and, and what was going on in the school. Um, and then uh, we were able to place and have, a, a, uh, you know, appointed a, a principal because the principal, the principal was retiring uh, that was there, um, have a principal who already was in the school, was known to us, uh, someone who really clearly um, uh, was very familiar with the Upwente Academy for Peace and Justice, really wanted to do that kind of community school um, in so many ways was really clear and on the same page around pedagogy and everything else. And he was appointed, Ben Onoroff, to the school. Then we had, I had the opportunity to hire our community school director, Fiorella Guevara, who was at, at the Annenberg, who I had met with Ben when we piloted um, the parent home visit. It was a national parent home visit initiative in MS50 a year before. So all of the as it were, the stars were aligned for us to then um, start our work in terms of um, transforming MS50. We started first with the teachers themselves, the facilitators, as we would call them, teachers as they call themselves and saw themselves, um, and really did a lot of support and processing with the, the, with the staff themselves. We created um, a room, took a room in the, in, the, in the school, I remember, and we called it uh, the Cafecito Corner. It was just a room where we were, we had coffee, we had donuts, we had, you know, bagels, and it was just open all day for 
staff to come in, parents to come in, students to come in, and just create community. Um, we were able, and, and they did, and it was just a space to really be able to be and to create community. I think the other piece that we had already piloted, but that we continue to support in a real um, hands-on way, was the parent home visits. And so this was a program where uh, incoming sixth, sixth graders uh, to the school would get a visit from, you know, staff of the school um, for the sole purpose of introducing themselves, going to their homes, and just asking them, you know, what is it that they dream? What is it that they're dreaming and hoping for their, their, their child and for themselves coming to the school? Profound profound in terms of, you know, a message that's given to parents that this is, this is, this is your school. This is your place. And we are very much committed to making those dreams come true. I appreciate especially the fact that you're discussing about a school that existed and then your take on transforming it to truly serve students. I think that for a lot of listeners, that may be the situation they're in rather than maybe having the opportunity to create a school from scratch may not be something they can do. Um, so I, just taking some of the um, some of the things that you've learned from creating your own school and applying it to a school that exists um, is, is really wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing those stories. I, I'm curious, you've done such a wonderful job setting up what the schools are now and what they've done. I imagine that you were motivated by something that you were seeing in your community to even think about creating your own school and then transforming a second one. Can you discuss some of the breaking points or points of tension between schools and traditional school settings that your schools are trying to address? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's uh, you know, m many of, of the things that I, I just talked about in terms of, um, you know, first and foremost is, you know, our concept of school, right? Um, you know, schools, for the most part, um, are fortresses or institutions or buildings that exist in a community, not necessarily connected to the community, not necessarily reflect, reflective of the community. Um, parents and I, you know, uh, are isolated and marginalized, particularly parents. Many of our parents in this community are a good example who do not speak English who are first immigrants, you know, first time immigrants uh, to the to the country. Um, there is no there is nothing built into into uh, the culture or the way in which schools are designed or the way in which they function that is welcoming and embracing um, in a sustainable way. Right. I mean, that really is clearly a place where they're, as we call what we say in, in Spanish, with confianza, that, that has that, that, that um, clear commitment to uh, building relationships of trust and compassion um, and respect with the parents and with the community. If anything, it's, it's usually we want to um, keep community at bay, right? Because, uh, you know, it's, it, it's just, it just complicates things, right? Um, so, you know, you start there. Um, and, and so really, that's clearly what needs to start, uh, where you need to start is really looking at what this, this school is. If this is a school that is part of the community, it's where we send our children and they spend 12 years of their formative life with parents 
come with trust and entrust us with their children, then what does that, what is the, the almost the moral mandate that we have in terms of how and in which way we facilitate and, and care and develop that space, right? Um, now that's, that's a, an intentionality in a conversation that I think really starts to talk about, I think, the divide here, right? Um, you know, what the school, when you walk into a school building, what do you see? You know, is, is also important. What do you see that tells you this is a place where I see me in it? I see my children. I see my community. I see my family. I see my culture. I see my language. Um, I think that's also very important um, and also essential. And then I think it's the curriculum itself, right? I mean, um, you know, where and how there is a clear connection that young people can feel in terms of what they are learning and what they are living and how and in which way they are clear that what's going to happen for them here and what everybody in this building, right, if we want to call it that, or in this space is committed to is really supporting them in a relationship, a sustainable relationship to really achieve their highest potential, the dreams that they have for themselves, and really give them the skills to be able and all that they need to be able to do that. That this is a place where, as I often talk about, they can find their passion, their purpose, and their power. Um, and everything that is designed and all the supports that are built in is for that reason. And that goes for parents also. And that parents are not just called in to have a meeting, um, to talk about a bake sale or a fundraiser, but they're brought in to really sit at the table and say, okay, what is it that you feel is happening here in the school that is working and what is not working? And what are your suggestions? What can we think about and we can do together to really improve this. I think something that I hold on to is just the amount of potential that you see in students where in traditional school settings, unfortunately, students based on their race or the language they speak are tracked into these um, academic paths that may not be the one that they should be in because of these assumptions that are made by educators. And the fact that your school sees focuses and, and, and like appreciates the potential that students have in different ways, um, I think is, is really unique. And I can see, I wish I went to a school like that where you, you know, each student is, um, their skills and the way that they see the world is appreciated rather than put into a box based on these identities that we carry. You know, you have these great facilitators, you have this awesome curriculum and I understand that in both your schools, you have a few frameworks that you have uh, done. And as time goes on, you rework them to make sure that they're meeting students' needs. And one of the frameworks focuses on develop, developing a deep sense of belonging among students. You mentioned if a student feels invisible, how do we expect them to graduate? Can you talk a little bit more about what this means and why it's so important for students to feel seen and heard in an educational setting? I think, you know, when we started the academy, um, the, one of the most, I, I'm telling you, one of the most moving um, 
um, exercises that we did was we did a word association. I, I, I went around the, the circle and said school, school to our facilitators. And I what came up and what the stories that, that were then related in terms of how and in which way we all felt invisible, um, humiliated, um, you know, uh, oppressed, I mean, you know, uh, ridiculed um, in, 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 in so many different overt and, and, and um, subtle ways um, in, in schools um, and, and throughout our school, you know, school experience was profound. And I think, you know, when you, when the first thing a young person does when they walk into a building is put their their bookcase on a, you know, um, you know, a runner for it to be scanned and they have to go through a metal detector and raise their hands. It is a clear message to them of who they are perceived to be, not who they are. Um, and I think, you know, this is where we are right now. Um, and I think particularly in, in communities like uh, of color and, com- and communities, poor communities like, like ours, right? Um, I think, you know, when a young person cannot, when their language is not uh, recognized, celebrated, and honored, when their history is not recognized, celebrated, or honored, their heritage, their traditions. Um, and there is nobody who speaks to them in the language of dreams, possibilities, and potential. Then it is very clear to that young person that they have no place in this world, right? There is no place. They have no place in this world. Their community has no place. Who they are, the very essence who they are, has no place in this world. And that everything that they then are being, being, um, uh, 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 what do I want to say? Uh, you know, really what they are being processed to really look at in terms of what is success, what is, uh, you know, uh, leadership, what is power has nothing to do with their lived experience. I think this is profound. This is absolutely profound. Um, and I think it's, it's that, it's that basic, it's that, um, and yet I think it's, it's where we need to start in, in saying when a young person comes in and the first thing that they um, they experience is someone at the front door greeting them and saying, you know, hi, Maria, you know, hola, Jose, you know, hey, good afternoon, you know, or good morning, um, you know, Danny, how's it going? How are you feeling? Um, good, good to see you. And they can come back and say, good morning, Francis, you know, that's already they are seeing when they are experiencing and hearing it in, in our both our schools, you know, the arts, really being able to engage in the in the arts in, in many different kinds of ways where they want to be a professional artist. Many of our young people do uh, and do go on um, or not. There is there are so many, multiple ways and entry points for them to experience and explore themselves, their inner life. Um, and what, what is that, that is about them that is unique, um, and that is passionate, right? Their passion, um, something that I say is, is really having an affair with their souls, right? And that is something that is celebrated. That is something that is supported. Um, then, then a young person really understands 
or starts to really see themselves in a powerful way and that they are a contributor to the, the world that they live in, the community that they live in, the space that they are in, um, that they are respected and honored in so many different um, and profound ways. And that who they are as they express themselves through art, through performing, through you know writing um, is also celebrated. These are so many different ways that the message is you are essential, you are important, you are a contributor, you are an agent of change. Um, in this world, and you have everything that you need to uh, make that powerful change, individually and collectively. Um, I, to me, that is just, you know, what we are here to do. It is, as I used to say, the right thing to do, right? <laughs> Thank you so much for outlining the ways that your school environments promote belonging. I, I want to, I'm curious to follow up on um, this idea of talking circles or talk circles that you do in your school. Can you briefly give us an overview of what that is and how that falls in the framing of belonging? Yeah, it, I think it goes back to our earlier conversation of what ap actually happened here at Puente today. Uh, we don't call them talking circles as much as we call them sacred circles uh, because we clearly are very cognizant of our ancestors and our cultural tradition. And so we do recognize the sacred, um, and we call them sacred circles because they are spaces that we are we clearly and very intentionally define as safe spaces where we are, we are inviting those who join us in that circle to not just bring their bodies, but to bring their hearts and their souls with the confianza, right, with the trust that this space is going to hold that and honor that. Um, and we do that on a regular basis with our staff, with our young people, um, in times where there might be crisis, um, when there is conflict. So this idea of conflict resolution, this is it, it's it's couched within sacred circles. Uh, we have very particular norms in terms of you know how and in which way we enter and we participate in sacred circles. Um, but this is a place where, again, there is um, equality, you know, with the adults that sit in that circle, as well as the young people who sit in that circle, parents who sit in that circle. Um, what it does is it, it just reaffirms um, our commitment to each other um, and our commitment to create safety and create a space of caring, love and caring and compassion for each other. Um, and our commitment to support each other through whatever it is, whether it be tragedy or trauma or conflict or celebration, right? A moment of celebration. And so even sacred circles that are about celebration and rite of passage um, are very much part of the culture of El Puente. What transformations are you seeing within your students? You've done such a wonderful job outlining the intention behind creating the space and the curriculum and making sure the students feel like they belong. I'm curious to hear, how is that manifesting in the way that your students are showing up for the world? You know, what we're seeing is young people, um, and particularly, uh, you know, I, I, I want to focus on young people who have, who have special 
challenges, right, who have special needs. We call them our VIP students. Uh, I think it's most dramatic in seeing sort of, you know, what and how young people who, again, in other settings, perhaps, would be invisible or would be dismissed or would be marginalized. Uh, our young people are able to continue um, to succeed and flourish and thrive in the in the academy as well as in MS50. Uh, I think in the academy, many of our our young people um, uh, graduate in four years, and there are there is again a. a a larger even number who graduate in five years, right? Um, because we are very clear that it, 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 there is also flexibility in understanding what young people need. Um, and some of that is why our, our schools are very small, right? Um, but um, many of our young people have gone on um, to graduate. Uh, many of our young people have, have gone on to uh, universities, private universities on full scholarships. Uh, we have had young people now, we have, I don't know what, which number co cohort of graduates uh, who are at um, Mount Holyoke, Hampshire. Uh, we've had young people go to Cornell, um, Smith, uh, you know, our state colleges. Um, many of our young people, and because we've invested in um, a college advisor who uh, does one-on-ones and matches with our young people in terms of small, um, small colleges, colleges that uh, are have programs and are focused on um, um, first-generation students uh, who have strong support systems on campus for uh, students of of color. Um, uh, we do those kinds of matches. So many of our young people are placed and go to, to those colleges after a process of, you know, again, being supported to, to visit the college with um, opportunities to spend weekends at the college, to have parents go up and see the college, because that's also something that is really important in terms of that transition that is not only for young people, but for their families. I think in the middle school, we have seen our young, the young people there being able to, first and foremost, their uh, academic, their math and uh, language arts uh, scores have gone up. Um, the attendance, as I said, has been 95 plus, but uh, the academic scores have gone up. Um, and really affirming that what we are here to do is to really say there are endless possibilities that are open to you and whichever one speaks to you, calls to you, we are here to support you. Um, and now we have a real rich uh, cohort of alumni also. It's incredible what young people can do with the right support, right? I think traditional school settings focus on serving students in a very siloed environment where they show up to class and they leave. And the way that you're grouping in their community, their family life, and really being intentional, even about college college selection. I also am a first-generation college student, and I um, went to a small liberal arts college in Minnesota, and knowing that, too, that I was able to receive the support I needed there and, and getting that guidance that I needed to support, you know, to make myself feel like I belong in that space as well was super important. And so it's nice to know that your school already incorporates that, and I'm it's amazing that your students feel so supported. Uh, my last question to you is uh, to conclude our conversation. Some listeners may be new to the framework and are tuning in to see how this framework can apply to their work. Some people who 
maybe working with young people in different professional capacities, such as social work, counseling, maybe organizing. What advice would you have, would you give them to apply this framework of belonging? You know, I think um, what I would say is, first and foremost, it, it, it begins with, um, with intentionality, with intention. Um, in, in terms of, of understanding that the work that we do, we do um, not in isolated silos, right? We do the, we do the work that we do, uh, not only in service with, but with our, you know, with, with community, with young people, if it be young people, with families. Um, and that when you choose to do this work, whether it be a social work or, uh, you know, education or organizing, uh, and we have, you know, we have frameworks here at Puente, three of which, and one of them is transformative community building, goes back to our principles. You know, you are entering community to become part of community. Um, you are not, you, it, it, you don't, you're not there to, to come and fix a problem. You are there to come and be a deep, intentional listener to the people that are there, to the people that you invite to be part of an experience, to the children that you have been entrusted with, right? Um, and the families that you ha- are in partnership with. And so it is incumbent upon all of us to be deep and intentional and compassionate listeners to, to the people, you know, and, and, and if we do that and it sounds simplistic, but I don't think it is, I think, you know, then we are guided, um, from the, from the right place to understand how we can be partners, allies, um, in a process of transformation. Uh, and I think intentionality of purpose is really important. And so in our case, it is always self-determination for the people in the community, for the people who live in that community, for the indigenous people who, you know, um, who are there, uh, for our young people, um, that, that, that intentionality of purpose is where uh, we can always then come back to the table wherever and however in the process and say to ourselves and answer this question for the sake of what. That was Francis Lucerna. Thank you so much for your time. And to our listeners, please check out our other podcasts where we discuss belonging and bridging in more detail. For more resources and curriculums on belonging and bridging, please go to belonging.berkeley.edu slash B for B. That is slash letter B, number four, letter B. To follow Francis' work, go to elpuente.us. That is spelled E L. P-U-E-N-T-E dot U-S. Until next time.